28 of August 2012, and the Lady Sangha on Tom Canto 1, Chapter 18, and we're doing the whole chapter. So, no, uh-oh, you're giving me that as a book table? Yes. Put a book? Otherwise, I'll play music. <laughs> <laughs> musical accompaniment. So, do you all read this chapter before this gathering, or some of you do, or who actually read the chapter before today? Okay. Well, I'm just going to go very quickly through the verses. Swami said, due to the mercy of the personality of Godhead Shri Krishna, who acts wonderfully, Maharaj Prikit, though struck by the weapon of the son of Drona in his mother's womb, could not be harmed. So this is the first section here. Sutra Goswami is going to be giving a summary. So for those of you who teach, you may note that the Shastra is full of summaries of Maharaj Prikit. Then we're going to have a section where the sages glorify the hearing process and ask Sutra Goswami to give them more details. And then, indeed, he does so and tells the incidents. So due to the mercy of the personality of God, it's Sri Krishna who acts wonderfully. Maharaj Brikit, though struck by the weapon of the son of Dronan, his mother's womb could not be burned. Furthermore, Maharaj Prikit was always consciously surrendered to the personality of Godhead, and therefore he was neither afraid nor overwhelmed by fear due to a snake bird, which was to bite him because of the fury of a Brahmin boy. Furthermore, after leaving all of his associates, the king surrendered himself as a disciple to the son of Yasa, Sukadev Goswami, and thus he was able to understand the actual position of the personality of Godhead. This was so because those who have dedicated their lives to the transcendental topics of the personality of Godhead, of whom the Vedic hymns sing and who are constantly engaged in remembering the lotus feet of the Lord, do not run the risk of having misconceptions even at the last moment of their lives. As long as the great, powerful son of Abhimanyu remains the emperor of the world, there is no chance that the personality of Kali will flourish. The very day and moment the personality of Godhead Lord Sri Krishna left this earth, the personality of Kali, who promotes all kinds of irreligious activities, came into this world. Maharaj Prickett was a realist, like the bees who only accept the essence of a flower. He knew perfectly well that in this age of Kali, auspicious things produce good effects immediately, whereas inauspicious acts must be actually performed to render effects. So he was never envious of the personality of Kali. Just a note from this purport, Prabhupada says here, that in the age of Kali, if you think of sinful things, you don't have to suffer. Whereas in previous ages, if you thought about sinful things, you had to suffer, but you had to actually do good things to get the good result. And Kali, it's the opposite. If you just think about doing good things, you get a good result. Yes? 
for all of us lazy people. <laughs> Just think about doing good things. And if you think about doing bad th things, you don't get the bad results. Pretty good deal. Mars Brickett considered that less intelligent men might find the personality of Kali to be very powerful, but that those who are self-controlled would have nothing to fear. The king was powerful like a tiger and took care for the foolish, careless persons. We're thinking that would be a good name for a child here. Rikon Rishu, the tiger man. Oh, sages, as you did ask me, now I have described almost everything regarding the narrations about Lord Krishna in connection with the history of the pious Maharaj Prithika. So Sutta Goswami says, okay, you asked me. I told you what you wanted to know. I'm finished. Those who are desirous of achieving complete perfection in life must submissively hear all topics that are connected with the transcendental activities and qualities of the personality of Godhead who acts wonderfully. Prabhupada also mentions in these purports, hearing about the devotees is as good as hearing about Krishna. The good sages said, so they weren't satisfied. They weren't just, okay. There's, no, you've got to tell us more. Tell us more detail. So the Bhagavatam is full of this questions and answers, and questions and answers, questions and answers. And the, the devotees, just like when Sukadeva Goswami said, so Krishna killed Agasura, but he didn't tell anybody for a, but the coward boys didn't tell anybody for a year. Okay, now let's go on. <coughs> Marge Prickett says, why? <laughs> What's the story behind it? So they ask for more. So here the sages are going to ask for more, but you can see the culture. They don't just say, hey, tell us more, like I would say. But they have this long glorification of the hearing and chanting process to encourage Sutta Goswami to actually tell them more. Am I speaking too fast? You all can follow my American speech. The good sages said, O grave Sutta Goswami, may you live many years and have eternal fame, for you are speaking very nicely about the activities of Lord Krishna, the personality of Godhead. <coughs> Sorry, I'm getting over a bad cold. This is just like nectar for mortal beings like us. We have just begun the performance of this, ritual, this fruit of activity, a sacrificial fire, without certainty of its result due to the many imperfections in our action. Our bodies have become black from the smoke, but we are factually blessed by the nectar of the lotus feet of the personality of Godhead Govinda, who you are distributing. Why don't you put your chair here over here? So. We're over here. Yeah. So this is also a nice purport where Prabhupada talks about how material activities, the results are uncertain. And he talks about farming. He says when you can farm, you never know. Are you going to get a crop or not? So these ritualistic activities are, are compared to farming. Whereas bhakti, he says, is certain. I was thinking about how much faith we have. You know, do we really have faith if I just chant Hare Krishna and I just worship the deity? It's certain. Or do we think, well... Will it rain? Will it not rain? 
the value of a moment's association. So this reminds us of a verse from the Chaitanya Charitamrita. And in fact, the word here is love and api, love and again, a moment. So the value of a moment's association with the devotee of the Lord cannot even be compared to the attainment of heavenly planets or liberation from matter and what to speak of worldly benedictions in the form of material prosperity which are for those who are meant for death. The personality of Godhead Lord Krishna Govinda is the exclusive shelter for all great living beings and his transcendental attributes cannot even be measured by such masters of mystic powers as Lord Shiva and Lord Brahma. Can anyone who is expert in relishing the nectar ever be fully satiated by hearing topics about him? And... Yes, Prabhupada makes an interesting statement in this purport. He says, in mundane affairs there is the law of satiation, but in transcendence there is no such satiation. So satiation means that if you eat pizza for breakfast and you eat pizza for lunch and you eat pizza for dinner and for breakfast and for lunch and for dinner and for breakfast and for lunch and for dinner, you don't want to see pizza anymore. I read about one man who when he was a teenager worked in an ice cream shop and one of the benefits was free ice cream. And so he ate lots and lots of ice cream and after a while when he even went near ice cream he would vomit. And he was actually unable to eat ice cream for the rest of his life. It got so bad he couldn't even eat sugar for the rest of his life. So that's the law of satiation. So material affairs, you're never really completely satisfied, isn't it? You ever say, I'm 100% totally satisfied. So you're never completely satisfied, but you get satiated. They're like, I I can't do this, I I need a break. Whereas spiritually, you're completely satisfied, but you never get satiated. You're fully satisfied, but you can keep having more. Materially, you're not fully satisfied, and you say, no, I, I need a break. Oh, Sutta Goswami, you are a learned and pure devotee of the Lord because the personality of Godhead is your chief object of service. Therefore, please describe to us the pastimes of the Lord which are above all material conception, for we are anxious to receive such message. So here Prabhupada says that if you are professional speakers and a materially absorbed audience, you can't get the full benefit. That you need to have both the speaker and the audience to be absorbed. And I was I was thinking about this, how I have one God brother who's always pressuring me, why don't you do more preaching to new people who don't know about Krishna? And I'm, I'm very glad that he does that. But I was thinking that sometimes when you're speaking to materially engrossed audiences, it's just not as relishable. When you're trying to just get to, you're not this body and there's a God and you should be a vegetarian. It's, it's not, <coughs> at least for me, as relishable. O Sutta Goswami, please describe those topics of the Lord by which Maharaj Cricket, whose intelligence was fixed on liberation, attained the lotus feet of the Lord, who is the shelter of Garuda, the king of birds. These topics were vibrated by the son of Yash, Srila um, Sukadev. Thus, please narrate to us the narrations of the unlimited, for they are purifying and supreme. 
They were spoken to Mara's Brigitte and they are very dear to the pure devotees being full of bhakti yoga. So that was how they asked him for more. A little model how to ask for more. Srila Sutta Goswami said, O oh God, although we are born in a mixed caste, we are still promoted in birthright simply by serving and following the great who are advanced in knowledge. Even by conversing with such great souls, one can without delay cleanse oneself of all disqualification resulting from lower birth. So here, I want to read something from this purport. So Srila Prabhupada says here that we're very qualified by hearing, but one becomes even more qualified by preaching. He says, transcendental science has to be learned from the authorities, and when one preaches to science, he becomes still more qualified. So Sutta Goswami had both the advantages of both hearing and preaching, and thus undoubtedly he was completely free from all the disqualifications of low birth and mental agonies. This verse definitively proves that Srila Sukadeva Goswami did not refuse to teach Sutta Goswami about the transcendental science, nor did the sages of Naimasharanya <coughs> refuse to hear lessons from him because of his inferior birth. This means that thousands of years ago there was no bar to learning or preaching the transcendental science because of inferior birth. So many times People like to say, oh, Srila Prabhupada made some adjustment because of modern society. And Srila Prabhupada here is saying, no, this is the eternal system. That thousands of years ago, your birth didn't matter. You could hear and you could preach. The rigidity of the so-called caste system in Hindu society became prominent within only 100 years or so, when the number of Dvijabandhus or disqualified men in the families of higher castes increased. So I think many times when we read this sort of thing, we think that, first of all, Srila Prabhupada usually uses the term men and mankind and he because that was English. At the time that Srila Prabhupada wrote these books, the English language was such that the masculine pronoun applied to all human beings. You didn't have to say men and women. It was understood. And now that has changed. You can no longer use he or man or men to refer to all human beings. Now you'd have to say men and women. But Srila Prabhupada doesn't say men and women. That doesn't mean he doesn't mean men and women. So it doesn't say here that you can be free from all the disqualifications of low birth unless your low birth is that of a female, in which case you're out of luck. It doesn't say that. There's no, there's no exception that by hearing from the right source and by preaching that whatever disqualifications are there because of our birth are nullified. They just don't matter anymore. And even Sukadeva Goswami is willing to talk to such and hear from such a person. The sages are willing to hear from Sutta Goswami although low birth means you've done sinful activities in your previous life, generally. Generally, unless you're Haridas Sakura who wanted to become a Muslim for another reason. So Srila Prabhupada's very uh, clear. Right? And he goes on saying the Ganges water is accepted as pure, and one can become purified after taking a bath in the water of the Ganges. 
Lord Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu wanted to purify the whole atmosphere of the polluted world by sending qualified preachers all over the world. Now, I also find this next statement very interesting. So Srila Prabhupada's first talking here about how birth doesn't matter. Whatever kind of birth you have, whatever kind of body you have, you can hear and you can preach. Who does he make responsible for making sure that qualified preachers go all over the world? What group of people does Srila Prabhupada put the responsibility on? Sometimes. Sometimes. Indians. Who is it that needs to make sure that this philosophy is spread all over the world without consideration of what body you're in? It remains with the Indians. To take up this task scientifically and thus do the best kind of humanitarian work. Of course, when Shil Prophet wrote this, he had not yet been to the West. So we should be going to the Indians and saying, this is your responsibility to show that whether you're a man, you're a woman, whether you're Russian, whether you're Dutch, whether you're you know, Filipino, whether you're a Shudra, whether you're a Brahmin, whatever it is, everybody except women can be... It said that, right? Didn't it say except for the woman? <laughs> didn't say that. Funny. We need to insert another verse into the Bhagavatam. <laughs> Prabhupada gave the responsibility to the Indians. He didn't say, okay, the Indians have to keep the, the caste by birth system. He doesn't say it's the responsibility of the Indians to keep this caste by, caste by birth system and not let any of these new ideas about spiritual qualification being transcendent to birth from ruining the culture of the society. It's not what he says. He says this is the tradition, this is the Vedic tradition for thousands of years. The Dharma. Mm. And what to speak of those who are under the direction of the great devotees chanting the holy name of the unlimited who have unlimited potency. The personality of Godhead, unlimited in potency and transcendental by attributes is called the Ananta. It is now ascertained that he, the personality of God, is unlimited and there is none equal to him. Consequently, no one can speak of him adequately. Great demigods cannot obtain the favor of the goddess of fortune even by prayers. But this very goddess renders service unto the Lord, although he is unwilling to have such service. Who can be worthy of the name of the Supreme Lord but the personality of Godhead Sri Krishna? Brahmaji collected the water emanating from the nails of his feet in order to award it to Lord Shiva as a worshipful welcome. This very water of the Ganges is purifying the whole universe, including Lord Shiva. So, Sutra Goswami is going on and on with this response before he actually gives them what they wanted. <laughs> they said, tell us more about Maharaj Cricket. And he's responding in these verses to the glorification of hearing about the Lord. Self-controlled persons who are attached to the Supreme Lord Sri Krishna can all of a sudden give up the world, now this is of course relating to the story, to the world of material attachment, including the gross body and subtle mind, and go away to attain the highest perfection of the renounced order of life by which nonviolence and renunciation are consequential. O Rishis, who are as powerfully pure as the sun, I shall try to describe to you the transcendental pastimes of Vishnu as far as my knowledge is concerned. 
As the birds fly in the sky as far as their capacity allows, so do the learned devotees describe the Lord as far as their realization allows. So this is another important point, that we speak according to our realization. And I think this is a very, uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but just note that, that that's here in text 23. Okay, now he's, now he's glorified Krishna, he's glorified devotees, he said, I'll do this as far as I can. Now, he's, now he starts telling the story. Once upon a time, Prabhupada mentions that in the purport, Ekada is a Sanskrit. Once, once upon a time, Maharaj Frikit, while engaged in hunting in the forest with bow and arrows, I, I, I posted an article on my Facebook about the power of stories to transform people's values. And one devotee was very upset and saying, how can you say the scripture is full of stories? I said, because it is. <laughs> I said, if you want to call them narrations, you can call them that, if that makes you happy. So once upon a time, here's our story. Maharaj Brickett, while engaged in hunting in the forest with bow and arrows, became extremely fatigued, hungry, and thirsty while following the stags. While searching for a reservoir of water, he entered the hermitage of the well-known Shamakarishi and saw the sage sitting silently with closed eyes. Now over and over and over and over in his purport. Again, 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 again. Prabhupada says, Maharaj Brickett can't be hungry and thirsty. He can't be angry. He can't be envious. You know, this isn't, it just, it's not what's happening superficially. It can't be taken at face value. These are transcendental people. This is the will of the Lord, it's the will of the Lord, it's the will of the Lord. Just keep saying it, practically every purple. The Muni's sense organs, breath, mind, and intelligence were all restrained from material activities. Great purport, I'm not going to read it. But sense organs. Which verse? 26. Sense organs, breath, mind, and intelligence were all restrained from material activities. What is that called in the Eightfold Yoga System? Which of the eight? No. When everything's pulled in, like a turtle. Yeah, but what's it called? What's the Sanskrit? It's called Pratyadhara. And it's compared to deep sleep. Like deep sleep, we're unaware of our surroundings. Pratyadhara. So the sense organs, breath even. Of course, in deep sleep, we're breathing. But everything's become suspended. We're all restrained from material activities. And he was situated in a trance apart from the three, wakefulness, dream, and unconsciousness. We could talk about this for a long time. Having achieved a transcendental position qualitatively equal with the supreme absolute. And then end of this purport, Prabhupada says, this trance stops all material activities in the body. I, I recently, at the advice of one devotee, read a book by St. Teresa of Avila about the seven interior mansions of the soul. It really sounds like she's describing Shraddha to Prema. And she talks about the prayer of recollection. And she says the prayer of recollection means you pull all your senses and your mind and your breath into the heart and you have no awareness. She keeps talking about how your body stops. Everything in your body just stops. 
So that's exactly what Srila Prabhupada is saying here. This trance stops all material activities of the body. How does a devotee do this? We'll discuss. The sage in meditation was covered by the skin of a stag and long compressed hair was scattered all over him. The king, whose palate was dry from thirst, asked him for water. Prabhupada says the same thing. He couldn't have been thirsty. Krishna's name. Huh? Anybody else want water so we don't have any dead snake gardens here? The king, not received by any formal welcome by means of being offered a seat, place, water, and sweet address, considered himself neglected, and so thinking he became angry. Again, uncharacteristic for a devotee. Very understandable, Prabhupada says, in ordinary situations. You go to someone's house and they ignore you. You're going to be offended. Especially if you're a king. Even if you're an ordinary person, you'd feel offended. If you go to somebody and knock on the door and they ignore you. But if you're the king, you're used to being welcomed and received and... So, but for a sage, and Pericket was also a sage, you wouldn't expect him to be disturbed, welcomed or not. Oh, Brahmanas, the king anger and envy. That's interesting. When I was in Hawaii, we were giving class on this chapter, so I, was, I just recently gave class on many of these verses. And I gave class on this verse. And at the end of my class, a number of the people said, why did you say he was envious? I said, because it says it right here in the Bhagavatam. And the word is matsaro. So the Sanskrit matsaro, that Maharaj was envious of Shamakarishi. He was angry at him and envious of him. O Brahmanas, the king's anger and envy directed toward the Brahmana sage were unprecedented, being that circumstances had made him hungry and thirsty. And again, Prabhupada says, pure devotees don't get angry and envious in any way. So this was all Krishna's will. Prabhupada compares it to Krishna bewildering Arjuna to speak the Gita. While leaving, the king, being so insulted, picked up a lifeless snake with his bow and angrily placed it on the shoulder of the sage. Thus he returned to his palace. And I love this purport. Where Prabhupada says that the king treated him tit for tat. So that's a very... You all know that expression? Tit for tat? What you give me, I give you back. That's basically what it means. Tit for tat. You're mean to me, I'm mean to you. You steal from me, I steal from you. You say something bad about me, I say something bad about you. What Gandhi said, eye for eye making the whole world blind. You keep on going in life after life, you know. All right, you did that to me, I'll do that to you. You did that to me. And Prabhupada calls this silly in this purport. He uses the word silly. Silly. He says he was never accustomed to such silly actions. Upon returning, he began to contemplate and argue within himself whether the sage had actually been in meditation with senses concentrated and eyes closed or whether he had just been feigning trance just to avoid receiving a lower ksatriya. You ever done that? You ever think, huh, I wonder if I did the right thing. You know, because first his reaction was, oh, he thinks I'm a satriya, and so he's just being rude to me. He thinks I'm not as good as him, a brahmana. He's, intent, he's just pretending to be in a trance 
so he doesn't have to receive me, a lowly ksatriya. And now he's thinking about it, and he's thinking, well, maybe he really was in a trance. Have we ever done that? You know? We ever we were sure that somebody insulted us? We were just sure of it, and we insulted them back? And did something, as Prabhupada says, silly? And then later we thought about it and thought, oh, maybe I didn't do the right thing. Maybe, <coughs> maybe it wasn't what it looked like. Maybe it was something else. And again, Prabhupada says, Krishna's arrangement, so forth, in purple. The sage had a son who was very powerful, being a Brahmana's son. While he was playing with inexperienced boys, he heard of his father's distress, which was occasioned by the king. Then and there, the boy spoke as follows. Did he think about it? Did he consult with any wise people? Did he consult with his father? Did he consult with the Shastra? He just acted. Did Mars Frickett think about it? Did Mars Frickett think about what he was doing? Thought about it later. So Mars Frickett didn't think he just acted. And now the boy's also just going to act. Oh, just look at the sins of the rulers who, like crows and watchdogs at the door, perpetrate sins against their masters, contrary to the principles governing servants. So Prabhupada says, yes, the Ksatriyas are watchdogs, but you can't call them watchdogs who should stay outside the house. The descendants of the kingly orders are definitely designated as watchdogs, and they must keep themselves at the door. This is a society that didn't sleep with their dogs. So yes, the Ksatriyas are the watchdogs of the state, but not that they're dogs. So he was taking something nice and true and turning it into something derogatory and insulting. On what grounds can dogs enter the house and claim to dine with the master on the same plate? Shringi. He's just like 12 years old. After the now, this is important, folks. This one is important. I've done this, and I've met a lot of other people in our Hare Krishna movement who do this. And it's so tempting to do this. This next mistake the Trini's going to make. After the departure of Lord Sri Krishna, the personality of Godhead and supreme rule of every of everyone, these upstarts have flourished, and our protector being gone. Therefore, I myself shall take up this matter and punish them. Thus witness my power. So, who's authorizing him as Krishna's agent? Nobody. He's saying, Krishna's gone. Therefore, the king is doing this. The king is insulting the Brahmanas because Krishna's not here. I am Krishna's agent. I will act on behalf of Krishna to right the wrongs of the world. I have done this. I fully, totally, completely admit that I have done this. I have thought, I am going to deputize myself to fix this problem. Don't do that. (laughs) I just recently had some correspondence from a devotee, nice devotee, I'm sure, but telling me how a particular sannyasi 
preaching really bothers him and he thinks it's all bogus and all of ISKCON is going to hell because of the way this sannyasi preaches. And I can't tell you anything or else you'd understand what I'm talking about. So I won't go any further than that. And I thought, well, maybe he really has it against this one sannyasi and then today he wrote me stuff about another three sannyasis. And I had written to him and I said, are you sure this is your service? (laughs) Did someone give this to you? I said, are you sure that it's your service to police these people? Because I told him, I said, look, why don't you just go to these devotees? I said, I know all these people. Go to them and talk to them. They're nice people. I know them. Just say, Maharaj, you know I don't think this is very good. There's this letter from Prabhupada that says this, but you're doing this. And give me your reason. Explain it to me. I said, if you're still not happy, you can go to the sannyas minister. And if you're not happy, you can go to, you know, the GBC body. And if you're not happy, you go to the deities and complain to them. <laughs> Actually, Burjampu told me that in Vrindavan, and it worked. I went to Burjampu about something. And I said, you know, I've gone to these authorities and these authorities and these authorities. And he looked at me and said, is this your service to fix this? I said, yes. He said, are you sure? <laughs> he said, who gave it to you as your service? Who deputized you? Uh, I said, but I can't just forget about it. It's driving me crazy. He said, then go to complain to Balaram. <laughs> And I said, why Balaram? He said, well, it's not Radhasham's temple, really. It's Krishna Balaram's temple. <laughs> I said, okay, but why Balaram? He said, well, he's the older brother. <laughs> so I did. I went to Lord Balaram, and I said, Balaram, you know, there's a situation going on, and I've talked to all the authorities, and nothing ever happens, and nobody ever listens to me, and I can't fix it, and I know that this is what, what Prabhupada wanted. You know, can you please do something? And he did. Not the next day, but he did. But this tendency to think... You know, that it's my job to fix something. So this was a really Shringi's very big mistake. And what's amazing is in this purport, Srila Prabhupada says that Shringi wasn't the agent of Krishna, he was the agent of Kali. How interesting. He was convinced I'm acting as the agent of Krishna. I mean, he was a devotee wasn't a demon and he was convinced I'm the agent of Krishna but he wasn't he was the agent of Kali nobody had authorized him he didn't get he didn't get any permission yes what is it you can come you can go there was this one yes but in this case it was his father Oh well, definitely something should be done. I mean, you know, Sati when her husband was insulted, she went and she just went also without permission. She did actually a very similar thing. She said, I'm going, and Lord Shiva said, No, you're not. You stay home. <laughs> he said, If you go, you'll be insulted. And he said that those insults will be equal to your death. Stay home. And she just said, I'm going. And she just went. I mean, it all worked out for the best in the long run, like this did also. But I would say, you know, ask your authority. 
Shengi should have first first gotten his father out of the trance and asked his father first, rather than taking action first. I mean, even Maharaj Brickett should have contemplated first and investigated first before just taking action. I mean, you know, Prabhupada keeps saying that these people were acting in this very unusual way because Krishna was pushing something. But as a general principle, you don't want to do precipitous action. You don't want to take action just in the heat of the moment. So I was in a community once where there was one lady who would periodically, and you know, after a while I wondered if it was hormonal, but she would periodically write very critical, inflammatory letters to various leaders in the community about various things. And the result was never pleasant for her or for anybody. And at one point, I remember saying to her, why don't you just write the letter? If you have to write the letter, write the letter and just put it down until your husband comes home from work. Yeah, just two or three hours. And just, just put it down. Wait till he comes home and show it to him and say, my dear husband, should I actually send this letter? And she said, no, I can't do that. So, I mean, I've learned to do that with email. You know, that sometimes you just like, you really want to write something. So I write it and then I save it. And then, you know, a few hours later, I delete it. So you learn not to just, okay, whatever. Um, we had, again, I don't want to be too specific because then everybody will know what I'm talking about. And that's, that's, we'll just detract from the message. But uh, I had an incident where one devotee came to me very, very upset that her spiritual master was being criticized. And the criticism was all over the internet and emails and it was a whole big thing. And she said, should I defend him? And I said, well, you want to be careful. Her immediate response was, I'm going to write a letter defending him and send it out to all the 3,000 people that got the original email. And I said, don't do that. I said, if you do that, you're going to spread it. And you're going to give credibility to it just by answering it. I said, why don't you first talk to him and find out what he wants you to do? You know, and, and take your, and we went through actually two or three days talking about, okay, what would be the best response? What would be a, a kind of response? Finally, I suggested to her, why don't you just write to the authorities and say, hey, we need to have what we call due process. We all know what due process is, like a proper legal process, not just that anybody writes anything on the internet. And it's interesting because that's exactly what ended up happening. I said, why don't you, you know, I said, if you really want to do something, gather together a group of people and just write to the authorities and say, we understand there's an accusation. Please, let's follow a standard process. And as soon as they did that, everything was resolved. So, you know, it's defending, yes, but how? You know, should you defend with just thoughtless emotion? So if someone's in immediate danger, you know, if Mars Prickett was, was pulling an arrow to shoot his father, but he wasn't. 
cricket was gone. There was this dead snake there. There wasn't some immediate danger to anybody. There was no reason why you couldn't take an hour to think about it and consult with people. And you know, and often, like this one devotee that I was just talking about, kept saying to me, "But it's very urgent. I have to do something immediately." I said, "No, you don't." You actually can wait a day or an hour. You know, you really don't need to have some immediate. Well, I've got to go there with my bow and arrow and my sword and my because you may make things worse. And Shringi definitely made things worse. And, and Prabhupada comments in his purport that Shringi's offense was great, and Parikit's offense was minor. So you know. The fault we're trying to cure may be a small one. I may be trying to kill a mosquito, you know, with an atom bomb. And so may, maybe even if there's a fault, and there was some fault, Mars Brickett shouldn't have done that. Prabhupada says he shouldn't have done that. So even if there is some fault, if I over-respond and I respond out of my limits of service, I can be causing much more of a problem. You know, like this devotee wrote to me that so-and-so Maharaj is bogus. He's causing so much more of a problem than whatever he's criticizing. So one has to be sober and, and careful. But what's really interesting here is that Shringi is convinced that he's Krishna's agent. I mean, that's what I find very interesting. He's convinced. I'm Krish- Krishna's not here. I have to do it. Like when I told this devotee, go through the process. He said, well, they won't do anything. It won't work. I said, what, what, what we mean by working is that Krishna's pleased. Whether or not things get fixed according to your ideas, not what's working. The son of the Rishi, his eyes red hot with anger, touched the water of the river Kosika while speaking to his playmates and discharged the following thunderbolt of words. It's also interesting that Prabhupada says the reason that Shringi had this power as a young boy is because of the reign of Mars Mars Brickett. That because Mars Brickett was actually a saintly king, the Brahmanas were able to have this power. So he was using power that he got from the reign of the king against the king. The Brahmin's son cursed the king thus, on the seventh day from today a snake bird will bite the most wretched one of that dynasty because of his having broken the laws of etiquette by insulting my father. Thereafter, when the boy returned to the hermitage, he saw a snake on his father's shoulder and out of his grief he cried very loudly. So Prabhupada said he cried because he knew he had done something wrong. So when we act like this, usually we figure out, just like Rickett figured out a little while later, oh, maybe he was really in a trance. And so Shringi's thinking, oh, I, I, giving the death penalty to somebody who put a snake on my father's neck was a little <laughs> much. Oh, Brahmanas, the Rishi who was born in the family of Angiramuni, hearing his son crying, gradually opened his eyes and saw the dead snake around his neck. He threw the dead snake aside, so he didn't, he wasn't concerned. And asked his son why he was crying, whether anyone had done him harm. On hearing this, the son explained to him what had happened. The father heard from his son that the king had been cursed, although he should never have been condemned, for he was the best amongst all human beings. The Rishi did not congratulate his son. Reminds me of Aswatthama and Duryodhana. But on the contrary, began to repent, saying, Alas, 
When a great sinful act was performed by my son, he has awarded heavy punishment for an insignificant offense. And uh, Prabhupada talks here in the purports things that I think are a little difficult for us at the present time about how kings can do no wrong and kings shouldn't be punished. And I, th- I think at the, at the present point in history, we, we really we, we just think, what? Huh? How can leaders be above punishment? Prophet says even if he does something really wrong, he shouldn't be punished. Oh my boy, your intelligence is immature and therefore you have no knowledge that the king who is the best among human beings is as good as the personality of Godhead. He is never to be placed on an equal footing with common men. The citizens of the state live in prosperity, being protected by his unsurpassable prowess. My dear boy, the Lord who carries the wheel of a chariot is represented by the monarchical regime. And when this regime is abolished, the whole world becomes filled with thieves, who then at once vanquish the unprotected subjects like scattered lambs. Due to the termination of the monarchical regimes and the plundering of the people's wealth by rogues and thieves, there will be great social disruption. People will be killed and injured, and animals and women will be stolen. And for all these sins, we shall be responsible. And Prabhupada notes that he says we. He doesn't say you. He says we. He takes responsibility. At that time, the people in general will fall systematically from the path of a progressive civilization in respect to the qualitative engagements of the caste and the orders of society in the Vedic injunctions. Thus, they will be more attracted to economic development for sense gratification. And as a result, there will be an unwanted population on the level of dogs and monkeys. The Emperor Pariket is a pious king. He is highly celebrated and is a first-class devotee of the personality of Godhead. He is the saint amongst royalty and he has performed many horse sacrifices. When such a king is tired and fatigued, being stricken with hunger and thirst, he does not at all deserve to be cursed. So first he talks about kings in general and then he talks about Pariket in particular. Don't punish the kings, great kings, and what to speak of this king. Then the Rishi prayed to the all-pervading personality of Godhead to pardon his immature boy who had no intelligence and who committed the great sin of cursing a person who was completely free from all sins, who was subordinate and who deserved to be protected. So the Shamak Rishi didn't, he thought, how is my son going to not suffer? He thought, well, if Pariket were to curse him back, then that would solve it, but he's not going to do that. So I just have to go to Krishna. Krishna, please pardon him, he's just a boy. The devotees of the Lord are so forbearing that even though they are, oh, this is one of those verses that you read it and say. Because if Karik had cursed him back, he'd be free of the reactions immediately. Otherwise? Well, reactions grow. Like Mars Prickett, he also asks, let the reaction, not in this chapter, but let the reaction come on me immediately and not affect my family members. You know, if you get the reactions immediately, like if I borrow money from you and I pay you back right away, there's no interest, or very little interest. But the longer I wait, the more interest you have to pay the more you put it off. So he's going to have to pay back from the laws of nature. Whereas if he gets punished by the king, that's it. Like if the, if the government punishes a criminal, then they don't have to suffer future bursts of karma. Because the government is a representative of God. 
Same with the parents. You know, when you have children, if they do something wrong and you correct them, then they don't have to get some other reaction. If you don't do anything, then they're going to, at least if they're older, then they'll have to suffer. So he was hoping, I wish the king would punish him, but he's not going to. Because it's a personal, it was done to the king personally. And he's not going to get back for a personal offense. The devotees of the Lord are so forbearing that even though they are defamed, cheated, cursed, disturbed, neglected, or even killed, they are never inclined to avenge themselves. So is this who we are? You know, I read this and think, not even inclined to avenge themselves. So I may not avenge myself, but I'm at least inclined to. If somebody defames me, cheats me, curses me, disturbs me, neglects me, my initial reaction is to avenge myself. My, my immediate reaction is, oh. Natural. Interesting. It's a, um, Satriyas are like that on the battlefield, yes. Where they're fighting for Dharma, they're not fighting for themselves. But he wasn't really Ksatriya, he's, a, he's really a Rajarishi. He's a Rishi in the role of Ksatriya. So he's saying that the devotees of the Lord, is it Tat Bhaktaha, the Bhaktas? He's not talking about the kings, the Bhaktas don't defend themselves. Somebody who's not a devotee, who's a Ksatriya? Sure. No, not a Ksatriya. If he's a Ksatriya, he protects himself. Why only Ksatriya? Anybody. But now you mentioned that the Ksatriya only fights for Dharma, not for himself. He wouldn't necessarily fight for himself. It depends who, who it is. I mean, we have like Maharaj Ambarish, who didn't defend, of course, he's also a devotee, but he didn't defend himself when a Brahmin guest tried to kill him. Now, if a Ksatriya warrior tried to kill him, yes, he would defend himself. But a guest? No. And a Brahmana? No. So, in certain circumstances, they would, even by Ksatriya mentality. The sage thus regretted the sin committed by his own son. He did not take the insult paid by the king very seriously. Generally, the transcendentalists, even though engaged by others in the dualities of the material world, are not distressed. Nor do they take pleasure in worldly things, for they are transcendentally situated. So, just to summarize here. So, Sutta Goswami gives a little summary. The sages ask for more and glorify the hearing process. Sutta Goswami glorifies the hearing process, then he tells the story. The themes I picked out here are always remembering Krishna, that no matter what bad things happen to us, and guaranteed. It's guaranteed, absolutely, that bad things will happen to us. For sure. I don't care what astrologer you go to. <laughs> you know? 
something bad will happen. Maybe little bad, big bad, whatever. But something. To just remember Krishna. So this was the quality of Maharaj Brickett, remembering Krishna. And then going into trance. Remembering Krishna in a very deep way, where one removes one's awareness even of the material world. You said, how do the devotees do that? The devotees do that when you're in love, you forget everything. So if you love someone, anyone here who's ever been in love with someone, whether you're in love with a man or whether you're in love with your child or if you're even in love with an animal, if you're in love with some other living entity, you, at least when you're in the height of that love, you forget everything else and you're always thinking of that person. So just like when you have a baby, so at least the first few days or week after you have a baby, you are thinking of that baby all the time, right? Those of us who are mothers. So you wake up at night and you check if the baby's breathing, <laughs> right? And if you go in the next room to wash the dishes or take a shower, you're constantly thinking of your baby. If someone else is watching your baby, even your husband, you're thinking, I hope, you know, how is my baby? How is my baby? How is my baby? If you go out of the house and leave your baby with somebody, you're always thinking, how is my baby? How is my baby? How is my baby? You know, and you may call them, and how is my baby? Right? So that's love. And when a boy and a girl are in love, also it's like that. You know, that you're always thinking of that. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You're in math class. And it doesn't matter. You're going here, you're going there, you're talking to other people, you're doing other things, but you're always thinking of that boy. So that's the natural samadhi of the devotee. And you may lose awareness of your surroundings even. I mean, we all experience this. Um, if you've ever read a really good book, you go into a kind of prachitara and samadhi. Or if you watch a movie, I assume all of us have watched a movie sometime in our life, and you go into kind of a prejudice horror and some other, isn't it? You, f- you forget time, you forget where you are, you forget time. And that also happened to me first time I read Bhagavad Gita. I stayed up all night. I didn't go to meals, I was in university, I didn't go to my classes, I just I couldn't stop reading. all of a sudden you go oh my god you know it's one o'clock in the morning (laughs) you lose your awareness of time and space you lose your awareness of where you are you don't know where your body is right haven't we all had this experience oh it also happens if we're really worried about something if we're scared same kind of thing happens somehow all your intelligence goes to one point and you just withdraw off and you don't even notice other people can be talking to you other things and you're not aware of them fixed so the devotee goes into samadhi by love the mystics like Shamakarishi they go into samadhi through a mechanical process there's ways of breathing and ways of sitting that will put your self into a mechanical position of samadhi does that make sense to everybody okay, so that's another theme of the chapter uh, devotee's general detachment because they're always absorbed and think they don't care what happens. I was really meditating on how this is real love. You know, if you really are in love, then as long as 
the person you love is happy, that's all you care about. It just doesn't matter. Nothing else really matters. And we see that people, you know, people do this for their country. They love their country, and so they go to war. Just think about that for a minute. You're offering your body as a sacrifice to your country. You know, you don't know. I mean, you ban people who go to war, and they can be crippled for life, you know, and blind for life, and chronic pain the rest of their life. So they're willing to do that out of love. And they, they don't care. They're proud of their of their wounds and their disability. I gave my right arm to my country. They are. Is that real love? No. <laughs> but it's something. There's something. It's like Prabhupada says nectar devotion. Everyone has a propensity to love somebody, but we don't know the object. It's very dissatisfying because you've got the wrong object and it's not pure love. But it gives us some idea. You know, the parents who are willing to work two or three jobs so their child can go to college. And it's kind of as long as my object of love is ha- My happiness is just in loving and in serving. I don't need a, another happiness. You know, the woman who cooks for her family, she doesn't care if there's any food left over for her to eat. She just wants to see everyone else eating and enjoying the food. So this some ideas, this is the mood of the devotee, and therefore the devotee really doesn't care. You know, if I have to be cursed, if I have to die, if I have to become a worm, it doesn't matter, whatever. As long as I can think of my beloved and, and what I'm doing is pleasing, my, they're taking happiness from the act of loving and serving itself. And we all have some experience of this. Isn't it? We all have some experience, even on a material level, that if there's someone I'm very attached to, that the act of trying to make them happy and seeing them be happy by my actions can be so satisfying to me that at least for a little while I forget about everything else. I'm not, I'm not concerned for myself. In fact, I'm even enjoying the process of sacrificing. I'm enjoying, you know, spending my money and spending my time and to clean the house and make the cake and have the party for them. And I'm, I'm not even aware that I'm sacrificing. I don't experience it as sacrifice. So this is the mood of curriculum. A real independence, and I want to just. Yes. About detachment? Yes. For instance, even if a mother or somebody we love. Yes. I don't know if you were mentioning it, but if we love somebody, then detachment is really the ability to do, we not care about sacrificing things. Yes. Sometimes we must become very attached. Oh, my child has to get that particular thing, and we become very attached. So I was just wondering, should we practice detachment? In the beginning of practicing Krishna consciousness, one needs to make a determined, willful effort to be detached and say, okay, I'm going to follow the four regular principles, whether I feel like it or not. 
I'm going to do this whether I feel like it or not because I want something. And in the beginning, our love for Krishna is very small, generally. There's some. It's not that there's nothing. But it's, it's not very developed. So we're not really being detached out of love. Our interest is primarily selfish. Well, if I love Krishna, I'll be happy. I'll be in the spiritual world and I'll be happy. Or if I love Krishna, I won't have to suffer anymore. Or I'll get to understand everything. <coughs> so that's really what's driving us. But it is, that kind of detachment cannot endure. Because uh, Srila Prabhupada explains that the real, what's actually driving anyone to do anything is the pleasure you get from the activity. So you can't just simply give up. You know, if, if you're sacrificing for your friend's birthday party, or your daughter's wedding, or you know, or, or something like that. What's driving you is the taste you're getting from that relationship. You're not really focused on the sacrifice. You know, you're, you're giving a birthday party for your friend, and you're spending your money on buying things, and you're spending your time making decorations and so many things. Just like I'm sure you spent time fixing up this place and arranging. Yes, you don't think of it. You're not thinking, oh, I'm sacrificing. <laughs> because you're, if the focus that you have is on serving. And the sacrifices just, they just happen. They're, they're not, um, you know, if you really are in love with a boy, you're not detached from all other men because you're forcing yourself to be. You don't even see them. You don't even know they're there. They're, they're just irrelevant. So it's something like that, you know, when you have a little baby, you, it's not, it's not that it's some kind of forced sacrifice. It's just, here's this helpless being who I'm taking care of and I have so much affection for. Something, like, we need to come to that point. You know, you might start off saying, well, okay, I'm going to do this by determination, but that's not, that won't endure. If you keep up like that, eventually you'll, you'll look for a taste somewhere. Am I going too long? Oh. Oh. Oh, very nice. Hi, Krishna. Here. Um, I just wanted to read this thing from 22 about real independence. Real renunciation means perfect dependence on God. Every living being is dependent on someone else because he is so made. Actually, everyone is dependent on the mercy of the Supreme Lord. But when one forgets his relation with the Lord, he becomes dependent on the conditions of material nature. Dependent on the conditions of material nature. So I'm feeling, okay, in order for me to be happy, it has to be not too hot, not too cold. My body has to be healthy. I have to have nice food to eat. My friends have to be nice to me, etc., etc., etc. So one becomes dependent on the conditions of material nature. Renunciation 
means renouncing one's dependence on the conditions of material nature and thus becoming completely dependent on the mercy of the Lord. So my happiness then is that I know Krishna is taking care of me. My happiness is not that I get nice food or not nice food. Is the weather okay? Is my health okay? Are people being nice to me? Etc. Real independence means complete faith in the mercy of the Lord without dependence on the conditions of matter. So faith in Krishna will say, then you're free. Then you're free. Then your happiness is, and your peace is not dependent on anything or anyone. And that's, that's independence that we're looking for. So materially people try to become independent by having enough money, by having their own house, by having the right power connections and influence, by having good friends, by neutralizing their enemies, by having good health, by having knowledge. By, and this way we think if I set up all the conditions of material nature, then I'll be free to do what I like. But you're not, because then we're dependent on material nature, and as soon as one of those conditions gets off, and they do, don't they? You get everything lined up, right? Get everything lined up, great. Now I can be free. Oop. Okay. <laughs> fix that one. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, fix that one. Oh, 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 oh. You know, sometimes they all go at the same time. <laughs> one of your friends insults you and your health fails and you lose all your money and it's pouring rain all at the same time. (coughs) But the mercy of the Lord is always there. So if the mercy of the Lord is always there, then you're actually free. Then if you're rich, if you're poor, if if you're famous, if you're infamous, if you're beautiful, if you're ugly, if you're sick, if you're healthy. Okay, seeing everything is Krishna's plan. So this is a major, major theme of this chapter and we really cannot give it uh, its due in this discussion and I find, I I have a huge question here, a really big question because Srila Prabhupada keeps saying that the bad behavior of Maharaj Prickett was the arrangement of God. keep saying that. Yes. And be detached. Those other places probably said he'd gotten too attached. He'd gotten too attached to his family and his kingdom and Krishna wanted him to hear Bhagavatam and go back to God and he said, okay, come home now. But he wouldn't just come so Krishna had to break it. You know, your kid's on their computer and you say, come to Prasadam and they don't come and turn off the computer. So Krishna says, okay, come back to home, back to God. No, I got this to come turn it off. So how did Krishna turn it off? He turned it off by having Maharaj Parikit do something wrong. First of all, he felt hungry and thirsty. Now, pure devotee's aware of being hungry and thirsty, but he's not whipped by hunger and thirst. Now, if I'm really hungry and really thirsty, I may get mean. And if you ever get mean, if you're hungry, thirsty, or tired, okay? Especially if you're hungry, thirsty, and tired. <laughs> right? When children are hungry, thirsty, and tired, they get very odd. And, and, and adults may also get a little peculiar. So, but this doesn't happen to Mars Cricket. He doesn't get funny when he's hungry, thirsty, and tired. So first of all, he was being whipped by hunger, thirst, and fatigue, which just doesn't happen to a liberated soul. They're aware of it, 
like you're aware that your car needs petrol, but it's not whipping you. And they don't lose their good sense. You know, I lose my good sense, but they don't. So he got affected. His judgment got affected. I mean, that's for a conditioned soul. I can say to someone, oh, I'm sorry I acted like that. I was really tired. Right? I'm sorry I acted like that, you know, and I was sick. And everyone says, yes, yes, okay, I understand. But for Mars Brickett, I'm sorry I acted like that. I was hungry, thirsty, and tired. No. Their behavior doesn't change. And then to insult a Brahmana? Whoa, the Ksatriya's never insulted Brahmanas. This didn't do it. To not recognize that Shamakarishi was in a trance? To think, oh, he's just making it up? To insult me? Which is how Prabhupada puts it. He's pretending to be in a trance because he thinks I'm a low Ksatriya and he's a big Brahmana. He thinks he's better than me. He's insulting. To imagine an insult? So let's put aside Shringi for a minute, but Marsh Prickett? Now how do we answer this question? That Marsh Prickett's bad behavior, improper behavior, which Shiva Prabhupada's called silly, and over and over and over and over again, these purports say, pure devotees don't act like this. So if we accept that his bad behavior is the plan of the Lord, what question does that raise? It raises raises some very practical questions. What are the practical questions? I can't answer them, by the way. <laughs> but what are the practical questions that it raises? What is not the plan of the Lord? Okay, is everything, the plan, is everything that happens the plan of the Lord? So we get this question all the time. This happened to me, was it Krishna's arrangement or my foolishness? If something bad happens to me, is that because Krishna wanted it or because I'm a fool? What other questions does it raise? When we see some other like senior devotees or sannyasis doing something, we think is it because Krishna arranged that to happen? Whoa. Should I see that any time someone that I understand to be an advanced devotee does something wrong, that it's actually Krishna's lila? So we're laughing, but that's what happened here. I cannot answer that question. But I will say that that question becomes raised by this chapter. How do you know? If somebody who's normally a saintly person and you accept them as a saintly person does something uncharacteristic and just plain out wrong? You know, at what point you say, well, you know, someone could have looked at Maharaj Brickett and said, well, I guess he really wasn't so saintly. I mean, it's interesting because Shamakarishi, in explaining that Maharaj Brickett wouldn't punish Shringi, he said, remember, we read that the devotees never defend themselves. But he just did. Putting the snake on the neck was a kind of defending himself, it was a kind of retribution. He had just done that. 
and then Shama Garishi, no, he's not going to do that. So Shama Garishi took the incident as a very minor blip. He didn't take the incident as something that was indicative of Mars Brickett's level of advancement or character at all. He said, Mars Brickett has this level of advancement, and this is just some unexplained, unimportant thing. So how do we know when to do that? How do we know when to look at the at some uncharacteristic, untranscendental, unliberating behavior to become affected by thirst and get angry because you're thirsty and tired and to insult a Brahmana who hadn't even offended you is not the behavior of a liberated person, as Sri Prabhupada says in his purports over and over and over and over again. So if we see someone acting like that, do we decide... I guess they're not liberated. Or do we say they are liberated and this is Krishna's leader? I don't know the answer to that, but this this chapter raises that question. It definitely raises that question. Uh, I mean, I could give an answer, but I don't think I could give a definitive answer. The basic answer here is that this was something very, very, very unusual. It It wasn't his standard behavior, like Arjuna's behavior on the battlefield. So the generally Arjuna acted as a liberated person and displayed the symptoms of a liberated person. But here in this one circumstance, he didn't. So did that mean that, oh, all the rest of the time he was faking? And it's also, I find it interesting also that in the verses themselves, it doesn't say this was the will of the Lord. That's the commentary of the Acharya. Ashila Prabhupada and the other Acharyas Prabhupada quoting the other acharyas. But in the, in the verses, it doesn't say that. So that's also quite, I find that quite interesting. So in the Bhagavatam itself, it's saying Cricket was angry and envious. So I'm just simply bringing this up. I'm not trying to solve it, but just this are, these are the kind of things we could spend a few hours talking about. The other question it raises is, what about me? When I do something stupid... Is it Krishna's, can I ever say it's Krishna's arrangement? Now this is a very serious question, and it's not, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking for each of us. If I'm normally very peaceful and tolerant, and then one day in five years I all of a sudden get very angry with someone, is that Krishna's arrangement? What is it? This, this is a real question. I, again, I don't know the answer to that. And anytime I act badly, do I say I'm acting badly because I'm a rascal? Is there ever a situation when I act badly, but actually that was Krishna inducing me to act badly? I don't know. I, I just honestly don't know. I'm thinking of... Um, a devotee came to me with a complaint about something happening, something that the management was doing, and it was, I, I don't want to say what the complaint was because it's sort of being recorded and so forth, and it's such an unusual complaint that it would be obvious who I was talking about to somebody who hears it, not to any of you. Uh, she made a complaint about what the management was doing, and her complaint was a very unusual one. It wasn't, I've never heard such a complaint before. Um, and it was very hard to take seriously. It was a complaint that you heard it and you thought, I mean, when I told a few other people what she said, they just laughed. 
And I thought, it was hard for me not to laugh. I was hearing her complain, and I was just thinking, are you serious? But she was really, really serious. She was very upset about it, and she was convinced that the management was going to literally go to hell. I'm going to take many, many births as animals, and she was, she, she was very convinced about it, and she even had a quote from the Shastra that anyone who does these things is going to take birth as an animal, and it was very, very upsetting. So I tried, you know, and there were a lot of other ladies around too, there was a whole group, and I tried everything that I knew. I pulled all my tools, you know, I tried my hammer, my screwdriver, my wrench, my everything, I tried everything, and I, it wasn't, nothing was helping. She was very angry. We have to do something about this. We have to stop this. This is very serious. Again, I wish I could tell you what it was, but I can't. Um, it, was, it was actually quite quite uh, interesting. It would be something, anyway, I can't. It'd be some, okay, something like how the management deals with the stray dogs that come on the Mayapur pocket. Something like Something like it's the duty, it wasn't here. Uh, you know, it's the duty of the management to feed all the stray dogs, and because they're not making the arrangement to feed all the stray dogs, they're going to help something very much like that. And finally, I got very angry. Just suddenly, really, I said, you're choosing to live in the temple ashram. That's your choice. And part of that choice means you have to respect the decisions of the authorities at the temple, and if you don't want to do that, you should live someplace else. And as soon as I said that, I thought, what did I just say? And why did I say that? And why did I get so angry? Immediately, I'm like, I didn't do that. I didn't say that kind of thing to anyone. I got very angry. I mean, I was almost shocked. You're deciding, you know, and I go, And I had a question. I'm like, am I just a complete nonsense rascal who shouldn't be preaching to anybody ever? Is this Krishna inspiring me to, to get angry at him? Where did this come from? Why am I doing this? I thought I haven't been angry at anybody like that for two years. And, and I really don't know. You know, and it's, it's easy to say, oh, whenever we're nonsense, it's because we're nonsense. You know, but I'm actually not sure. I'm really not sure. I just don't know. That's another question raised by this. You know, is, 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 does Krishna ever push me to do certain things in that way? I mean, I know Krishna pushes me to do things by doing something with my health or doing something with how other people treat me or giving me a service opportunity or sending me an invitation. I mean, I, there's a list of ways in which Krishna manipulates me that I could give you. You all have ways Krishna manipulates you? I'm sure you know them after a while. Oh, he's doing that one. Okay. But is that one of them? Is one of the ways Krishna manipulates me sometimes to bewilder me? I don't know. I, I just don't know. I cannot answer the question. Yes. Oh, that's not true. That is not true. He also saw it as the plan of the Lord. Definitely saw it as the plan of the Lord. 
He saw both. Definitely saw both. So, you know, he had repentance and regret for what he did. He didn't have the mood of, well, my behavior was just Christian later. That wasn't, you know, he thought, I really did something wrong and let me suffer as soon as possible. But he also saw this is Christian's arrangement. This is Krishna's arrangement for me to become detached in here in body. He did see that. So it's... You see his behavior as... You know, like, you know, the, what happens when you see it as... But it was... You, you, how can you separate it? If he hadn't behaved that way, he wouldn't have gotten cursed. So it's, it's very intertwined. To say that, you know, that no Brahmin would have cursed him otherwise. The only way a Brahmin would have cursed him was by him acting out of character. So, no, he did see both. There's a place where Prabhupada says he saw that the Lord had taken the form of the curse. He saw this is Krishna calling him. So he did, he did see it both ways. I mean, Srila Prabhupada talked about himself this way, actually, just thought it was. When Prabhupada bought the land in Juhu, he said, if I had known, he said, if Krishna had told me Mr. Nair was a cheater, I would not have bought the land, but Krishna bewildered me, so I would buy the land. Now, of course, I wasn't doing anything wrong, but in one sense, you know, Srila Prabhupada was angry at the devotees who were cheated by Mr. Price in New York. So in one sense, you could say that. I, again, I can't. I don't really have an answer. I just think this is something to think about, and it's a question that's raised by the chapter. That does Krishna ever also bewilder our intelligence as a way of pushing us to be where He wants us to be or do what He wants us to do? wouldn't have to suffer. But Krishna did use it. So Shringi wasn't Krishna's instrument, he was Kali's instrument, but he was also Krishna's instrument. He was. So that's also there. Okay. Um, the next theme here is the value of scripture, the value of hearing. There's all these verses back and forth from the sages to Sutta Goswami about the value of hearing the glories of the Lord, the value of hearing the glories of the devotees, the value of both speakers and listeners being pure. 
And then the last thing I'm going to mention really briefly, and I'm, are you all killing me for the time? <laughs> the last thing I'll mention is just what I said I would talk about in 23, uh, that to describe the Lord as far as their realization allows. So and this is why I'm sometimes bringing up questions that I can't answer. I think it's important to note that these questions come up, but I don't feel that I can say, okay, here's the answer. So to speak up to your realization. Now, if you want to say something above your realization, you can say, this is what it says in the scriptures, but I don't understand it. And, and I think of uh, one personal story happened to me. I was in Aventure, and there was a meeting of about 45 educators, Hari Keshit called, from all over the world. So in the audience were Ridainanda Maharaj, Tamal Krishna Maharaj. I mean, it was quite an audience. And 10 minutes to 7, someone comes up to me and says, Ramila, I know you're willing to give class on a minute's notice. Would you give the class this morning? And I said, sure. <laughs> what verse is it? So it gives me a ver the verse in purport where it says, the Pandavas went back to Godhead in their self-same bodies and so can you. <laughs> I thought, I have no idea what this means. I thought, oh, this is one of those purports that I read and said, huh? I'll understand this later. And I went to the next purport and I thought, how am I going to speak on this from the Vyasa Sun? And not only speak on the Vyasa Sun, but in front of these 40 GBC sannyasi scholars. <laughs> I thought, what kind of a fool am I that I said, yes, I would speak in the class with 10 minutes to prepare? <laughs> It was not funny. So I prayed a lot. And I wrote down like 10 different explanations. And those of you who know me, I just don't shy away from things. If it's there, I'm going to hit it. I thought, you know, okay, I could just talk about something else. <laughs> but I thought, it's there, I've got to talk about that. what's in the purport. So... I think I've never been as nervous. You know, my hands were shaking like this. I had to, to push my hands onto the lectern to keep them. I was sweating so much I had to change all my clothes after class. And I gave my 10, you know, two, three minutes in the class, that goes away. You forget all that, you forget everything. But I gave my 10 explanations. I talked about other things too there wasn't the only thing in the purport. And at the end of the class, I said, so? Does anyone else have any other explanations? Nobody did. I was like, yes. <laughs> Nobody else understands it either. <laughs> so if there's something, you know, we don't know, say we don't know. I really like Jaguar Tamarish. He says, if there's something you don't know, just say, I don't know. You're allowed to say, I don't know. You don't have to be God. It's okay. You don't have to know everything. Even if there were some things that Prophet said, I don't know. There was one letter Prophet wrote to Ekiani. He said, you'll just have to go to the spiritual world and find out for yourself. <laughs> so, you know, if there's something you don't know, you say you don't know. None of us are God. None of us know everything. Even the pure devotees don't know everything. 
and it's okay to say, I don't know, or I'm bewildered. Narada Muni was bewildered seeing Krishna in all of his palaces. You know, Lord Brahma said, anyone else can say they know all about you, but as far as I'm concerned, I can't know about you. Now, this is also not realization, just but experience. And in this regard, I like the story the Prabhupada tells in Chaitanya Charitamrita about um, Sankaracharya. So Sankaracharya, in those days, the Brahmanas used to debate. So even here in Mayapur, do you all know we just had the Olympics? In my, in my, do you know that, or here you don't even know that there's an Olympics? Okay, well there was just a big Olympics. Here you don't know what they could be bombing each other in the rest of the world. So in the Olympics they compete, you know, who's the best runner, who's the best diver, who's the best everything. And in a Vedic society, there were these kind of competitions among each of the Varnas. This is one way you keep everything pure. I'm sure there were competitions between the weavers and, you know, dance competitions. And there's certainly competitions among the Vaishyas. Like this competition in the marketplace. Certainly competition among the Ksatriyas. And there was competition also among the Brahmanas. You always want to push up the best. And whoever lost the competition had to surrender. This is one of the ways you keep truth. Whatever it is, but the way you keep the different... Everyone has their area of protection. The Brahmanas have to protect truth. Satyas have to protect people. Vaishas have to protect natural resources and animals. And the Shudras have to protect the arts and skills. So to keep that protection on a high level, you have competition. One of the ways you do it. Not the only way is competition. So the Brahmanas would have debates. And if you lost... You surrendered. You had to become the student of the person who defeated you. So mostly to become a student of Sankaracharya because Brahma is such a Jagamitya, the world is false. If you're a follower of Sankaracharya, you have to become a sannyasi. It's rather serious. You don't just become a disciple. You know, you engage in one of those debates. Like the Ksatris, they're fighting to the death. You know, it was, they weren't just fighting for a gold medal. It was, it was a very serious thing. So Sankaracharya came to debate with the king. That was interesting that the queen was considered so qualified that she could be the arbitrator of the debate, although her husband was on one side. She could be so neutral and, and detached. So Sankaracharya de- debated with her husband. She said, Sankaracharya is one. My husband has been defeated. She said, but I'm half of my husband's body. So defeating my husband is not sufficient. You have to also defeat me. Now, the terms were they could debate on anything in the scriptures. Well, the scriptures are very broad. And there's a part of the scriptures that deal with what Prophet says in that purport, erotic principles. Yes, erotic, sexual. Prophet says, the queen said, okay, now you have to debate with me on the erotic principles. Because in the Vedas, there's everything. There's the weaponry, right? Not just transcendence. There's also the Kama Shastras. And Sankaracharya said, I can't. <laughs> he said, I took sannyas when I was eight years old. He said, I can read these scriptures, but because I've had no practical experience, I can't talk about it. Very interesting. He said, give me a month. <laughs> Seriously. He went to a cave. He put his body in a trance. 
He had his body watched by one of his disciples, and there was a king that was dying. As the king died, Sankaracharya entered that body of the king. So he could experience the erotic principles without contaminating his sannyas spell because he experienced it in a different body. And Prabhupada says he lived for one month, it's a very famous story, he lived for one month as a king, experienced the erotic principles, then left that body of the king. So people saw that the king almost died, came back to life, and then died a month later. Then he entered back into his own body and went back to debate with the queen. She accepted defeat then by Sankaracharya. And Prabhupada said she then gave up material life. So I, I looked it up and um, some people say that she left her body and went to the higher planets and some say that she also became like a sannyasini and started her own ashram and there's stories of her as a renunciate with her own disciples and etc. So we're not, we're not really sure if she had a physical death or a renunciate death. But the point is that Sankaracharya didn't think he could speak about something about which he had no experience. So when we talk about realization, we're talking about spiritual realization, and we're also talking about experience. And I, I think it's very, very important for, you know, for preaching in the Hare Krishna movement that we only preach about things that we actually know and we've actually experienced. If there's something that we don't know and we have no experience, we send the person to somebody else. So I see that more and more of our lifetime renunciates are starting to do this. You know, that more and more of our people who've been renounced, if they're preaching to grahastas, they say you need to ask a grahasta instead of trying to give advice on something about which they have no experience. And the same way, you know, if, if we're a grahasta, then we can't really... I remember one woman asked me in New Zealand, she said, how can I be a lifetime renunciate? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I haven't done it. Not in this life. I don't remember, you know, if I did it in another life. I said, I can tell you from the Shastra, but I wouldn't know which verse to quote. I wouldn't know if I'm quoting out of context. I wouldn't know if I'm balancing. I said, I can give you, you know, I can tell you principles from the Shastra, but I can't go any further than that. I, I can only go to that level. So I thought that was the last theme. I'm sorry I've gone so long. When were we supposed to end? Like a long time ago. I'm sorry. Is, this, no, is anybody mad at me? Um, That's <laughs> She's good. We like to give her a sweetness. Thank you very much. I always like having a, a, a good reason to go through an in-depth study. And it was so much fun because I just gave so many classes on this chapter just a couple months ago. Another garland. <laughs> It was a children's book like this, where the guy took off his hat and there was another hat. <laughs> so if I keep giving away my garland, don't keep manifesting. Uh, just, Cindy, it just, and we have cookie, uh, cookies to distribute. Cookies to distribute. You know the Prabhupada tells that story of the yogurt pot? You all know that story? We made a book like this for our children's books. So there was, should I tell you a story? Should we end on a story? Okay, so there was this little boy. I gave him the name Raju in my book. Probably didn't give him a name. So this little boy, he was very poor. And he would go to the Gurukul every day. He obviously wasn't in ashram school. He lived at home. So he was going to the Gurukul every day. And one day the teacher said, oh, we're going to have a big festival. Everybody has to bring some prep 
what we call in America potluck. Do you call it that here? What do you call when everybody brings something? Like we did for Vias Puja here in the community hall. Everybody brought something. Potluck in New Zealand also. So potluck. Everybody has to bring some, some pot of some food. So the little boy goes to his mother. Mommy, the teacher said, I have to bring something. What can I bring? So at the school, the teacher's asking, what will you bring, what will you bring? He, didn't, he was poor, you know. So he goes, oh, Mommy, what am I going to bring? And she said, we don't have anything. We're poor. And he said, what will I do? And she said, well, there's somebody called Dina Bandu. So Dina means poor and Bandu means friend. So there's somebody called Dina Bandu. He's a friend of the poor. If you ask him, he'll give you something. Oh, who's Dina Bandu? Where does he live? Oh, the sages find him in the forest, very much like Dhruva and his mother's You can go to the forest. So go, there's a forest. In my book, I made a forest on the way to school. So he goes in the forest and he's calling, Dina Bandhu, Dina Bandhu, Dina Bandhu. And he's calling and he's calling. He starts crying, actually, and nobody comes. And then Krishna comes. Yes. You called? Bandhu, I need to bring some food to the school. <laughs> We're poor. We can't bring anything. So Krishna says, you tell your teacher you'll bring some yogurt. So he's happy. He goes, I'm going to bring yogurt. So it's a big festival. Bringing yogurt would mean bringing, you know, <laughs> huge enough for hundreds of people. So the day of the, the, day of the festival, he goes back to the forest. Dina Bandhu, Dina Bandhu. Krishna comes and he gives him a little, you know, those little tiny clay pots. He gives him his little, but he's just a child. So he's an innocent child. So he's happy. Oh, my friend gave me a question. It's Krishna. How can I can be happy with Krishna? He's <laughs> obviously in transcendental bliss. So he takes this little pot and he's just happy, you know. Takes it to his teacher and his teacher's, what is this? teacher's furious. This is a festival. What are you doing? This isn't even just for one person. And he just, this is useless. The teacher just spills it on the ground. And poor little boy that I named Raju. And then the teacher notices. He looks in the pot. And he sees it's full. Dumps it. Dumps it. So Prabhupada says that is spiritual life. Om Purnamadapura. Always full. Thank you. Thank you for tolerating all my mistakes. If there's anything I said you think is foolish, please ignore it. Anything I said that's useful, please take it on. Hare Krishna.